This is Car Expert. I'm looking forward to BMW releasing a 1.5 series to sit below the 3 series, which is now a 5 series, and the 5's are 7 and the 7's are 9, and they're just massive cars, and I just don't know that they need to be. It's a perfectly acceptable car. It's not a standout necessarily in any which way, but it's super comfy, very relaxing. I think that appeals to the demographic that Citroen's really trying to find with this car. Welcoming to this week's Car Expert podcast, Scott Collie. Hello, Mandy. And hello, Jack Quick. Hey there, Mandy. Guys, I've got to tell you about uh, a really cool weekend I just had. It was my birthday weekend and I decided to do something completely crazy and hire a retro RV. Now, think of a combi cut in half and sort of like part of a caravan put on the back of it. They call them snails and it literally looks like a snail. Um this thing was awesome and uh, I, I met up with a couple of friends and I from Sydney and uh, we went to the Great Ocean Road, explored the Otways. You know what, I reckon the Otways is so underrated and probably better than the Great Ocean Road. There's some great stuff around there. I do a little bit of driving down the Otways or through the Otways to get to Apollo Bay. I spend a bit of time down there and the road from yeah the, the Colac Freeway down to just before Apollo Bay is one of my absolute favourites. It's got a bit of everything. There's fast sweepers, there's tight sections, and depending on the time of day, it's pretty quiet as well. So I can imagine you had some fun. I'm assuming you weren't going too quickly in the camper? (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing. You actually can't. So the the lady I hired it off, she said... um, just don't go off-road and don't drive any faster than 90 kilometres per hour. I'm like, oh, God, okay, well, that puts me out of the freeways then. And uh, I'm like, okay, so I got to about 80 and I'm like, whoa, okay, I can see why she said this. The thing was just billowing around and it wasn't even that windy and uh, it's a massive steering wheel and you're like a bus. Um, And I thought, yeah, no, I I don't really want to go any quicker than, than 80 k's to be honest. You have some experience with slightly ropey classic cars at speed. So um, the, the fact that even after driving a chunk of Australia in your Beetle, you weren't willing to go faster than 80 says a bit about these campers. Yeah, exactly. Look, it, it, it was super practical. Um, you know, I had a double bed in it and uh, you know, kitchen facilities and, and all that. Um, I've got to say, though, it was powered not by an original combi engine, thankfully. Um, it was a Subaru engine. And uh, I don't, I, I don't know the exact uh, amount of liters or CCs in it, but I do know it was uh, much quicker than my Beetle, even how heavy that thing is. You had fridges and all sorts of things in it, and it sounded incredible. <laughs> Dual pipes out the back, and we were having fun, just sort of uh, sitting there giving me a few revs and like, listen to this thing. <laughs> Mandy in a combi WRX STI. <laughs> Um, So, Mandy, given an unlimited budget and an unlimited amount of time, what would you ideally take on that road trip? Because we recently covered a Mercedes-Benz Marco Polo van, one of the Mm -hmm. fancy ones with the pop top and the luxurious interior and that sort of thing. And I'm I'm not really into camping, but I, I think that could convince me. Yeah, I, you definitely need to to give it a go, Scully, because it's got all of the, the mod cons in it. It looks old and retro, but it's been completely decked out by this company called Retro RV. So you've got heating and, and air conditioning. It rides like a new car. Um, it just obviously doesn't handle like one. And it's very, very quiet. Like the engine is still in the back. Um, but because you've got all that camper stuff out the back, it's... Uh, surprisingly refined um so look i think you can actually now buy these they were originally only you can only purchase them to have a franchise um but they're now available to buy and i think you can get them for just under 100k so a little exy but my god the amount of attention that it got on the road um i think it's almost worth it welcoming to this week's car expert podcast for the car news once again jade credentino hello Hello, Mandy. Now, please tell us about this new Range Rover Sport lineup. Yes, so the new Range Rover Sport lineup has just been announced and the brand has introduced a new flagship SV Edition 1 model. Now, prices excluding on-road costs for the range start from $156,050 for the Dynamic SE D300 and jumps to $360,800 for the SV Edition 1 P635. 
The flagship Range Rover SB is powered by a new BMW-sourced twin-turbo 4.4-litre V8 engine, producing 467 kilowatts of power and 750 newton metres of torque. Now, it is worth noting in launch mode that can jump up to 800 newton metres. It's mated with a 8-speed automatic transmission and a 48-volt mild hybrid system. Those outputs are up 44 kilowatts and 50 newton meters on the supercharged 5 liter V8 in the old Range Rover Sport SVR. The company claims the SV is capable of 0 to 100 kilometer hour in 3.8 seconds with a top speed of 290 kilometers per hour. It will be available in edition one guys only and is on an invitation only basis. It features a 6D dynamic semi-active suspension system, which combines hydraulic interlinked dampers, height adjustable air springs and pitch control. The V8 flagship also features unique tuning for the all-wheel drive, all-wheel steering, active lock rear differential and JLR's torque vectoring by brake and configurable dynamics systems. It's available with 23-inch carbon fiber wheels, which JLR says is the world's first and offers a weight reduction of 9 kilos per corner compared to the 23-inch cast alloy wheels. All other Range Rover Sport models are available to order with deliveries expected in the fourth quarter of 2023. You can view the full article, including all the specs, at carexpert.com.au. What are your thoughts on the new flagship model? Well, hello, Jade. I'll say hello, first of all. I know that you mentioned um, that this model, this um, Range Rover Sport SV Edition 1, um, comes with 23-inch carbon fibre wheels. Now, I thought it's really important to mention that this is actually an Australian connection. Now, these uh, carbon fibre wheels are going to be made in Geelong by a company called uh, Carbon Revolution, which has made uh, wheels for lots of Ferraris and Mustangs and Fords and the like of a whole heap of sports cars. But this is the first time that uh, this company has made a carbon fibre wheel for an SUV. And as I previously said, it's working on picking cups and all that kind of fun stuff too but um a really really cool bit of information about um this Range Rover Sport SV but another thing that I wanted to just mention is that uh seeing that this uh Range Rover Sport SV Sport SV has a a new 4.4 litre BMW sourced engine I'm really interested to see or to hear what it's going to sound like I I imagine it won't have it obviously won't have that same supercharger whine as the old engine and whether it'll be a little bit more muted um, I'm very very interested to to I suppose um, once we get it Scott will probably have it take me for a little hoon around because I probably won't be able to drive it yet but um, I'm really looking forward to seeing it once it comes to Australia yeah, Jack, unfortunately, I think the insurance on uh, on JLR cars is 25, so you're not quite there yet, but um, <laughs> we'll be sure to take you for a spin. Um, I'm also curious about the price on this. I understand that it's an invite-only thing, the SV Edition 1, and it's, it's select clients only globally, but it does seem like a lot of money for a car that fundamentally has the same engine as a BMW X5M, and then if you go further down the range, it now has the same engine as a BMW X5M60. Um Obviously, Range Rover does something a little bit different. It's got some really clever tech. And I recently sat in a new Range Rover Sport. It is gorgeous inside. But $360-something thousand, that that is a lot of money uh, for, for a car that now shares its engine with, I mean, it feels a bit rude to call the BMW X5 sort of mundane, but it is a more mundane car than the Sport SVR. Uh, the other thing I am curious about is if anyone's going to off-road this. Obviously, Range Rover is known for being making these very luxurious large cars that can go anywhere, and the old SVR could still do a little bit of off-roading. As cool as these carbon wheels are, the thought of dunking them in water and scratching them on rocks and bashing through uh, trails and that sort of thing um, is kind of terrifying. So I think at this point, we've sort of given up on, on the Range Rover SVR being an off-roader, and we've just made it a proper sort of almost track-ready road SUV, which, to be honest, makes a lot of sense. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to move on to some uh, more luxury cars here. Now, the 2024 BMW 5 Series has gained a few EVs, Jade. 
Yeah, that's correct. So the latest generation of the BMW 5 Series will now receive electric powertrains for the first time, but unfortunately, its combustion-powered lineup is shrinking to a single variant in Australia. The 5 Series and electric i5 are due in Australia in the fourth quarter of 2023 and will be sourced from Germany. BMW is yet to reveal pricing for the upcoming models, but has revealed engine and power outputs. With the new model, buyers who are not willing to go for one of two electric i5 models will have only one choice, a rear-wheel drive 520i. It features a turbocharged 2-liter four-cylinder engine mated with an 8-speed automatic transmission and a 48-volt mild hybrid system. The 520i produces 153 kilowatts of power and 330 newton meters of torque and good for a 0 to 100 kilometer time of 7.5 seconds. Those seeking more power will now have to consider the electric i5 models. The i5 eDrive 40 features a single rear-mounted electric motor producing 250 kilowatts of power and up to 430 newton meters of torque with the sport boost. It has a claimed 0 to 100 kilometer time of 6 seconds. The i5 M60 xDrive has a dual motor all-wheel drive powertrain producing 442 kilowatts of power and up to 820 newton meters of torque. Now it has a 0 to 100 kilometer per hour time of 3.8 seconds. Both i5 models use a 40, uh, sorry, an 84 kilowatt hour battery on a WLTP range is 582 kilometers with the eDrive 40 and 516 kilometers on the M60 xDrive. They use a 400 volt electrical system and support three phase AC charging up to 22 kilowatts and DC fast charging up to 205 kilowatts. Now, the 520i comes standard with the following equipment. Now, I'm only going to mention a couple of high-level things and make sure you check out the Car Expert article for the full list. You've got 19-inch M alloy wheels, an M Sport package, comfort access, which gives you keyless entry and start, 12.3-inch digital instrument cluster, 14.9-inch touchscreen infotainment system with BMW 8.5, heated sports uh, front seats, wireless charger, and carbon fiber. Now the i5 eDrive 40 adds adaptive suspension professional. You've got 22 kilowatt onboard AC charger, mode two and mode three charging cables. Now, as I mentioned, the full price and specs are available on the Car Expert website. Do you think BMW has done the right thing to reduce its internal combustion engine offering in Australia? And what do you guys think of the new lineup? I think BMW has gone the right direction. Um, ultimately, sales of cars like this have been declining for quite a while now. Anyone who wants a big family car looks at an X5 or an X7. So, it does make sense to really slim the range down. The the one sort of group of people who are going to miss out here are the police. Um, Jade, you've reported that in Victoria, the 5 Series is currently used for um, highway patrol. And Vic Pol has actually now said it's looking at the X3 as a replacement because there's no equivalent to the 530D powerful, talky diesel that they currently have. So, Vic Pol is missing out. There's a couple of other um, police forces around Australia that use that 5 Series. They're going to have to find an alternative. But other than that, realistically, if you're buying a car like this, it's either because you're a, a higher car driver, in which case it kind of makes sense to have the economical 2-litre petrol engine, or you're buying it because you want a, a, a sort of cool car that makes a statement. And in 2023 or 2024, when these cars start rolling out, the cars that are making statements aren't big, powerful V8 sedans anymore. They're electric cars. So, I think BMW's gone the right way there. I do want to go slightly off track here, though, and talk about how massive this car is. I know that cars are growing with every generation, but this is 5,060 mil long or just over five meters long. I've just done some research. It's actually 21 mil longer than a 2008 7 Series. What? It is huge. Um, I'm looking forward to BMW releasing a 1.5 series to sit below the 3 series, which is now a 5 series, and the 5s are 7 and the 7s are 9, and they're just massive cars, and I just don't know that they need to be. What do you reckon, Jack? No, I'm going to be just a little bit frank. This car does nothing for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I feel like it's just 
BMW's design with the, the 7 Series for me is just a little bit monolith monolithic and bleh. And I feel that the same characteristics have obviously carried over to this smaller, or oh, I say smaller, it's not really that small, 5 Series. Yeah, so it just like does nothing for me. And I'm, I know that the that you mentioned that the cool statement is, Scott, you mentioned that um, the cool statement right now is electric, but it's disappointing to not have like a, a inline six five series right now but what i am looking forward to and bmw hasn't mentioned anything about this yet but we've seen uh, a lot of spied prototypes of the upcoming m5 which is um set to receive from my understanding the same uh, plug-in hybrid uh, v8 uh, petrol engine setup as the xm that huge SUV that looks absolutely crazy so i'm very interested uh, for that in particular i don't know if i really care about the the core 5 Series range. At least right now, that could change once I see it in person. Um, but yeah, right now, it's not really doing much for me at all. <laughs> well, I reckon a car that might probably do something for you, Jack, and I'm sure we'll, we'll hear what you have to say about this one. Uh, the 2023 GWM Tank 300, we've got all the deets, Jade. Yes. Now, for those who don't know, the GWM Tank 300 is a rugged body-on-frame SUV, smaller than ute-based models like the Ford Everest and Mitsubishi Pajero Sport and doesn't offer a third row of seating. There is a choice of petrol and hybrid powertrains with the range opening up at $46,990 drive away. Now pricing tops out at $60,990 drive away for the flagship ultra hybrid model. The petrol uses a turbocharged 2-litre four-cylinder engine producing 162 kilowatts of power and 380 newton metres of torque, mated to an 8-speed automatic transmission. It uses a part-time four-wheel drive system and features a locking rear differential and a tank turn function to reduce the turning circle. The Tank 300 Hybrid uses a turbocharged 2-litre four-cylinder engine producing 180 kilowatts of power and 300 and 80 newton meters of torque paired with a 78 kilowatt and 268 newton meter electric motor now gwm hasn't published total hybrid system outputs in australia however the company's global sites claim the outputs are 224 kilowatts and 640 newton meters with a 0 to 100 kilometer per hour time of 7.9 seconds the base model Lux features 12.3-inch digital instrument cluster as well as a 12.3-inch touchscreen infotainment system, comfort tech leather upholstery, front and rear parking sensors, crawl control, 17-inch alloy wheels, Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. The flagship Ultra Hybrid adds semi-autonomous parking assist, Napa leather seats, heated and cooled front seats, wireless phone charging and auto reverse tracking. It is available in five color options, including white, silver, red, orange, and black. Now, fossil gray is standard and all other color options will incur a 595 cost. Scott, you were able to test drive the Tank 300. Now that we've seen pricing, what do you think? I'm going to mention this, uh, just jump in really quickly, Jade, before Scott replies. But I think it's just really uh, something note, something to note is that the price, but pricing between the petrol and the hybrid is there's a huge price difference. It's roughly, it's between nine and $10,000, which is what? humongous. And if you think of the, the context for the rest of the, the GWM range, price difference is usually only like 4000 or like 5000 So this 9000 to 10,000 is huge, uh, a huge difference. And it makes me think, why would you get the hybrid? Because um, from my understanding of reading this story and what GWM um, tank has released so far, um, the the petrol engine is uh, has a claimed uh, consumption, a fuel consumption of 10.7 uh, litres per 100 Ks. And the hybrid isn't much better at 10.3 so litres per 100 Ks. Mm. So, I don't really know that understand what the why why so much more money the features are the same as well so I'll pass over to Scott now I think the the big difference between the hybrid and the petrol 
uh, is going to be the performance off-road. Um, the hybrid, we drove both these cars very briefly at the AARC. And because the hybrid's got an electric motor to help boost torque, uh, when you put your foot down going up a hill or when there's a loss of traction or something, it can react faster. I don't know that I'd pay 10 grand for that difference though because it's not as if the regular tank kind of is light on for off-roading features. It's still got proper locking diffs and low range and all that sort of thing as well. So if you were GWM, I think the argument is probably that the hybrid is the more capable, faster car on the road and will go further off-road because of the boost that the electric motor gives. But yeah, at at $10,000 difference, that'll buy you a pretty nifty couple of bits and pieces from ARB that can probably bridge that gap. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. And lastly, Jade, we'll be forking out a little bit more for the 2023 Mazda 3. Yeah, that's right, Mandy. So Mazda Australia has released detailed pricing lists of its upcoming Mazda 3 hatchback and sedan range ahead of its local launch in July. The range starts at $30,320 before on-road costs for the G20 Pure sedan and hatch and extends to $42,320 before on-road costs for the G25 Astina hatch and sedan. Now, the base model is up $2,160 from its predecessor, while the flagship also receives a noticeable $2,010 increase. There is an additional price increase for the rest of the range, which you can find detailed in the article on our website. Mazda has decided to completely remove manual transmission and the option of a mild hybrid powertrain as well. Now, the option of the Vision technology package now costs $2,000 on the G20 Pure, G20 Evolve, G20 Touring, and G25 Evolve SP, which is up $500. However, customers who purchase the Vision technology package on these models will now receive a larger 10.25-inch Mazda Connect infotainment system. The package also adds surround view camera, cruising, and traffic support driver monitoring, front cross traffic alert, and front parking sensors. There has also been an upgrade to Mazda 3's in-car tech. The G20 Touring grades and above now receive wireless Apple CarPlay, wireless phone charging, and USB-C ports. A highlight in this update is the Mazda 3 G20 models with the 2-liter naturally aspirated four-cylinder petrol engine now receives cylinder deactivation and other improvements to the combustion process, which is aimed at lowering CO2 emissions without any compromise of performance or drivability. Ceramic metallic exterior paint replaces sonic silver in the model's eight strong color palette, including soil crystal red, machine gray, and polymetal gray which those cost an additional $595. You can find the full list of pricing specifications via the Car Expert website. Do you guys think these price increases are justified across the range? And what do you think Mazda's goal is? I think Mazda's goal is to make its money. Um, Mm -hmm. As with all car brands at the moment, it's dealing with component shortages, shipping's expensive, all that sort of thing. Um, But it just it just is sort of in line with inflation, really. So I'm not too surprised by the price rises, and I think the Mazda three still represents pretty solid value. Uh, we recently did a comparison between the Mazda three Astina, the Golf, and the Honda Civic, and all three of them were a very similar price. But for the money, the Astina gets a lot of kit. It's a very handsome car, and we know it's really nice to drive. So yes, it's more expensive, but. I think that Mazda's constant evolutions bring something new every year. It's really good at just keeping cars fresh with little nips and tucks and changes every model year. Um, and I think even though you're spending a little bit more, I mean, two grand is not a small amount of money at this end of the market, uh, it still represents solid value. Now, I um, I famously said that the Mazda 3 hatchback is the best-looking new car <laughs> on sale in Australia, um, which raised a few eyebrows when I selected it. But anyway, it is what it is. It's my opinion. Um, now, I... Yes, I know. I can see why these price increases are justified. I do understand the inflation argument and this, that, and the other. But I will just say um, I do quite like that the this larger screen is coming to the Master 3 range, but it is a little bit disappointing uh, that for the majority of models, it's locked behind this vision uh, technology package, which adds a whole heap of active safety features and the like. Um, I wish it was standard across the range because that the 8.8-inch unit is a l- 
little bit small and thin and a bit tricky to see. It'd be greater to see that larger screen. And I will also mention, you mentioned it, uh, Jade, but it's really, I'm, I'm not sad to see uh, the mild hybrid uh, powertrains go uh, because it's obvious they didn't uh, get enough attention, I suppose, in Australia is a, a way to say it. But I am sad to see the option of a manual transmission go. I know that I'm one of the few that might be like that. Uh, and I would have loved the opportunity to, uh, to drive one when it was brand new. I, I probably still do. But um, it's just the way of the times. And I think this is one of the, the last uh, small passenger vehicles to offer a manual transmission. So, But it is what it is. And I imagine people will continue to buy automatics and pay the higher price and get the bigger screen and wireless CarPlay. So I suppose Mazda is doing the right thing on that, mm. on that far, part. Yeah. All right. Well, that wraps up this week's car news. We thank you so much, Jade Credentino. Thank you, Mandy. I'll hopefully see you next week. We've got James Wong on for the next review for this podcast. Hello, Jay Wu. Hello, hello. I feel like I'm the phone-in um, interviewer <laughs> for, the, for every week's review the last couple of weeks. It's been quite I, fun. I reckon. Well, that's... This car that you've driven actually is pretty fun too, the 2023 Citroen C5 Aircross. Yes. I must admit, this is actually a cool little jelly bean. Yeah, well, it's a very big jelly bean if you want to talk size comparisons. <laughs> but yeah, it's quite a funky looking thing and, and it's a, an interesting take because um, the first one was already so distinctive and it's so Citroen in the sense that you had all of the trademark design elements from you know that that make the the brand what it is all their cars are quite um distinctively styled have very key elements like the chevrons on the grill and split headlights and that kind of thing and so with this latest one they've gone for a little bit more angular up front particularly because the first one was quite round and they've made a, a number of changes to the interior to make it a little bit more premium looking i guess and it's been a long time coming because this car was actually revealed almost early last year, but it doesn't seem like it's really been rolling out, particularly to right-hand drive markets until lately. I think the UK only recently started seeing first deliveries and we're seeing it now. And uh, they've basically trimmed it down to one variant. So there's only one version of it that you can get. So it's gone from being sort of fairly niche but having a couple options to being niche and also having just one <laughs> one flavor basically <laughs> which um which variant is it is it the, the the upper one or yeah so now we get one that's called the sport and uh it's basically if you look at overseas how they do their trim walk up there it's the Sport is based on the Shine, which is Citroen's high-grade or luxury versions that they offer overseas. And then if you you could actually spec it up on, say, like a British configurator by having a Shine and then putting like the black pack and some of the other optional features onto it. So it's called the Sport here. It's got like the you know blacked-out grille, black wheels. Uh, depending on the color that you get, you get a black roof as well. And basically you've got pretty much everything that Citroen has offered in its global feature feature portfolio, which doesn't quite match everything in the segment, but it's still pretty well featured. And now that it's 54,990 plus on road costs, which is about a two and a half grand increase on the old one, which was much less well equipped than the current one. It's still on the premium side of the medium SUV segment when you look at things like the Mazda CX-5 and the Kia Sportage and the like, but it's sort of like a funky niche, almost boutique sort of left field option that, you know, if you like the the styling of Citroens or you like the idea of it being really focused on comfort or you like, it's quite a small car for the segment too. It's literally like four and a half meters dead in terms of length, which is shorter than a CX-5, well shorter than a RAV4, and well shorter than something like a Kia Sportage or Hyundai Tucson. So, you know, parking it in the city, for example, you can probably fit into tighter spots than you might be able to in some of its competitors. So it's it's an interesting proposition and it's also much cheaper than the equivalent Peugeot 3008, which, which some people might not know, this car shares a lot of its DNA with. So the platform, the engines and everything are all shared with the Peugeot. I think you're being quite generous there, JY. Um <laughs> <laughs> because I, I sort of had a look at the spec sheet of this and thought, oh, it looks good, and then sat in it. And one of our big complaints with the first C5 was the fact that the interior tech felt old from the second it arrived in Australia. Mm -hmm. And this update hasn't actually fixed that. Why hasn't Citroen given this the new infotainment system from the Peugeot 308 or the 2008? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I assume it has something to do with the fact that the car is already a year or so old. And um, you're right, it, it the tech does feel old compared to something like the C5X, which launched a couple of months ago and has a complete, like, an even bigger display with connected services and everything. But in fairness, having experienced spent a lot of time with the previous generation of Peugeot and Citroen product with that infotainment system. This one is a development of that older software. So it is quicker. It is high resolution. It's got a 10-inch screen now instead of an 8-inch. It's uh, it's much quicker to respond to inputs and things like that. But yes, you're right. It isn't quite as good as um, what's on offer in the new 308 and things like the C5X. And it also lacks things like wireless uh, Apple CarPlay and Android Auto in addition to the connected services, which is a shame. I don't want to harp too much on this, but that 10-inch screen is kind of cheating because the the extra bits that have made the screen bigger are just permanent climate control numbers. They don't actually – they're not usable. The usable area remains the same, which really frustrated me. Yeah, that's true. But also the old one was an 8-inch screen with the same layout, so you can sort of see how <laughs> – So it, say, say the old one had a usable real estate of 5 inches, now it's grown to 8 <laughs> as opposed to being 8 to 10. It's it's sort of, yeah, you know, French things, they like to do things a little bit different. You know, you still have quirky stuff like the glove box is only half of a glove box because the fuse box takes up half of the, the thing. It's just, it's just funny things like that that they still do. And, you know, I think my, my take on it is that this car obviously appeals to a very, very specific demographic as do, you know, most Peugeot and Citroen products have always done that. They've got a very loyal core audience, which in terms of numbers might be quite small compared to how successful they are in Europe. But I think the way that it's, the way that it's angled and the way that it drives even and how it performs and how it's packaged is very um, targeted at a certain type of buyer, which I think will be, make those people happy. It's definitely a lot better than the old one. And um, we can sort of get into that when we talk about driving and, and, and all that kind of stuff in a bit. But I still think there's a place for it. And I'm, I'm glad that even if it, you know, they didn't even sell 70 of the old one last year. So it's a very, very low volume car. And the fact that they've bothered to, you know, homologate a new one and add all these new features and whatever, it, it speaks to Citroen's commitment to our market, I guess, because the, the company's old and probably could do a lot better things than worry about us if there's only a handful of people that are going to buy it but uh i think you know I'm, I'm a big advocate for choice and diversity in the in the market and this is a great example of that now james you mentioned that this uh this car is a lot shorter than its rivals i would love to know how you thought the second row space is like and also the boot what's that like <laughs> The second row, it's funny in the in all of their brochures and whatever they go, they harp on about having three individual seats, which means you get all this amazing practicality. So it's sort of like a little people mover in that all three seats can individually slide and recline fore and aft, and you know back and forth and whatever. And once I actually sat back there and had the front seat in my driving position, it is quite compact and that length that that short length they've definitely prioritized the boot space over second row passenger accommodation which seems to be a common theme amongst the Peugeot and Citroen products on this platform you even think of like a, a 308 hatchback and wagon where they have massive boots given their size but then the third the second row seat is quite short so the second row I could snugly fit behind my own driving position. I wasn't quite leaning up against the seat in front. Um, if, you're, if you're behind someone like Scott, then forget it. But <laughs> for, for me, uh, they've carved out, um, so they've scalloped out the seat backs and everything so that I probably had, I want to say, like an inch of maybe slightly less of room between my knee and the backrest and but the actual footwells are nice and deep the the rear seats are slightly elevated so you get a good view out but yes it, the second row accommodation is not its um standout quality it's definitely less than even something like a Mazda CX-5 let alone a Toyota RAV4 or Kia Sportage Hyundai Tucson but that also means that it's got quite a nice big boot um Citroen quote 580 liters which is right up there with the best in the segment in terms of quoted volume. And it definitely feels that large when you actually move around. There's an adjustable load floor, so you can either have a flat load bay when you fold the second row seats, or you can dip it down and just maximize outright capacity. And it's quite a long and squared off area. So, you know, if you're carrying big boxes or longer items, you can either fold down that middle seat if you've got two rear passengers. So it's almost like a big ski port or you can, you know, adjust the floor to allow for a deeper load space with more volume and, 
you know, it's definitely quite a, a big usable space and perhaps you're not going to expect it when you see how compact the car is. But it does also mean that, yes, a second row accommodation is not great for taller adults if you're six foot and above. But kids will be fine back there. It's got nice big windows, Isofix and top tether points. So if you're fitting child seats and things like that, they've, they're sat nice and high. They've got a good view out. And Australia gets the panoramic sunroof as standard too. So basically if, you are, if you've got kids that are prone to being car seek or whatever, they can look up or the sideways or out the front and they've got a window to look out of. All right, Joe, how does it drive? The, the drive experience is a bit interesting because the, like, unlike a lot of vehicles in the segment, Citroen really harps on about how it's focused on comfort and it's got a, a couple of different technologies within its um, suspension and seating systems that try to really give you a, they call it the magic carpet ride. Um, it's not quite Rolls-Royce good if, and probably far from it, but it has these um, fun- funky dampers that have like shock absorbers or cushions on each side of a shock absorber to sort of mitigate forces at high and low compression um, frequencies as well as seats that are sort of made out of like a memory foam construction so you it sort of feels like you're sitting on a couch or an armchair and then the ride's very softly sprung so i wouldn't recommend trying to drive this particularly quickly or you know sharply up a winding b road it's not designed to do that it's meant this car is very much designed to get you from home to work or home to the shops or wherever it is in in comfort the new one actually gets an updated engine so it still runs a 1.6 liter turbo four cylinder like the old one but now it's got a little bit more power so it's got 133 kilowatts the old one i think made about 120 and it also gets a new eight speed automatic transmission instead of the old six speed so what that also does other than adding a couple of gears and you know lowering revs when you're at 100 k's is it allows Citroen to fit their latest driver assistance system. So they have this funky thing in the Peugeot and Citroen lineup where if you get the six-speed automatic, you can't get some of their semi-autonomous systems. So now you can get, the, they call it lane highway lane assist or something like that. Basically, it's their version of the semi-autonomous lane centering stuff that you see in a lot of other brands. So now it will accelerate a little bit quicker. I think it quotes like an 8.2 seconds, zero to 100, which is not fast, but not slow either. Uh, and now it'll also keep you within the center of your lane and keep a safe distance ahead. Uh, performance is fine. It's not particularly quick in a straight line. It's And it seems calibrated to be much more linear and smooth as opposed to trying to really hit you in the back with torque. And it's not really that torquey anyway, um, compared to some other rivals in the segment. But the eight-speed transmission in this particular car is probably one of the best that I've sampled in a Citroen. I know in the past, Mandy, I think we've whenever I've reviewed a Citroen with you, I've always complained about the transmission being a little bit clunky. And because they're so softly sprung, you almost feel like, you know, there's little seesawy things that you see in kids' playgrounds where you sort of rock rock about like that. (laughs) At times, uh, this one is definitely much better in that respect. It's once you get moving, there's no noticeable gear changes or anything like that. It shifts very smoothly. There's no real interruption to power delivery. Um, It's only really the off occasion at low speeds if you're on an incline or something where it almost feels like it doesn't have hill start assist and it starts to roll back if you don't get off the brake quite quickly enough. But other than that, it's it's a really just comfortable and quiet place to sit the seats are really comfy it hand it's got really light controls so it's very easy to steer or park and all those kind of things it isn't super loud in terms of powertrain noise but there is a weird buzzy sensation that comes through it's almost like there's a fan ticking away which is just not super refined but other than that it's just it's it's a very it's a car that you just want to drive in a relaxed manner and if you do it that way it's just it's very nice to live with. And then it's also not out of its depth on the highway. It'll happily sit in eighth gear at a hundred Ks an hour and you'll have the steering assist on basically does all the work for you. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a perfectly acceptable car. It's not a standout necessarily in any which way, but it's super comfy, um, very relaxing. And I think that appeals to the demographic that Citroen's really trying to find with this car. Now, um, I would love to know what is the efficiency like in this car? Is it best in the city and on the highway? What kind of uh, fuel, petrol does it require? Great question. Uh, It's not a hybrid of any sort. So, you know, with any combustion-only engine, your best fuel consumption is either going to be like at an 80-kilometer-an-hour highway or on the freeway. Citroen claims a quite respectable 5.0. 
0.8 liters per 100 Ks, which is fairly low. Um, this powertrain is certified to Euro 6 standards, has stop start, but no any real sort of electrification like mild hybrid technology or anything like that. But I managed 6.9 per 100 Ks in the week that I had it, which covered about 500 kilometers of mixed driving. So that includes, you know, driving high traffic to and from the city to go to work and then some extended stints on the highway over the weekend. And, you know, to get sub seven in a car that size, like, you know, my sister's Volkswagen Polo does about six and a half on a good day. So it's pretty efficient. It does require 95 uh, octane premium unleaded, which is a little bit more expensive, but that's fairly typical of European cars. So that's something to consider if, if you're quite focused on budgeting for ongoing maintenance costs. Speaking of maintenance costs, um, Citroen's really driven down the price of its servicing. So you can get a three or five year service pack, which average out at about $400 per year. And it's got, you know, the usual 12,000, sorry, not 12 month service intervals, but I think the intervals are 20,000, not 15,000. So if you do high mileage, that's something cool as well. And yeah, it's, it's actually quite efficient compared to a lot of other vehicles in the segment that run just like turbocharged engines. If you get into like a Tiguan or a Karak, for example, you might get seven or eight. And then in some of the naturally aspirated stuff, you might get eight or nine. I think not long ago, I had a, a Kia Sportage based diesel, which was doing like low to mid sixes with similar driving. So, you know, it's it's pretty good, This anything this side of like a Toyota RAV4 hybrid. All right, Jamo, which car expert rating did you give it? It gets a 7.7 overalls because uh, while it obviously has some really nice traits in terms of the comfort and the boot practicality and whatever, I think that for the pricing, some of the missing features and the, the lack of grunt compared to rivals at this price point are probably going to grate a little bit for people looking at the wider segment. All right. You can check that review live at carexpert.com.au. Thank you, James Wong. Thanks for having me. The Mahindra XUV 700 will be touching down in Australia in a couple of weeks. And, uh, Jack, you had the opportunity to suss it out beforehand at the launch review. Um, what exactly is the XUV 700? And can I say, why can't we just call it the 700? Yeah, I know, right? Um, so I finally got the opportunity to go over to India. It's been a long time coming. Um, it was meant to be earlier in the year, as I've talked about a few times on the podcast now. Um, but I uh, finally got the opportunity to go over and test drive the the XUV 700. That's how Mahindra wants you to pronounce the name of this midsize uh, unibody SUV. From my understanding, um, XUV 700, that O sound at the end is supposed to bring good luck or something. It's meant to mean good fortune or something or other in in India and um, which is why a lot of Mahindra vehicles um, have an O sound at the end like Scorpio uh, and all the like and fun stuff like that so that's why I'm, uh, the, obviously the XUV 500 as well the one that's replacing the, the this model uh, the model that's replacing Anyway, you get what I mean. But, um, yeah, I got the opportunity to go over to India where it was absolutely swelteringly hot. <laughs> I can't even describe the, the sweat that was coming from everywhere at the time. It was also 80% humidity, so I was dying. Right. But it was really, really a fun opportunity to get to test drive um, this car before it arrives on Australian soil. So exactly, like, how big are we talking with this car? So from my understanding, it's just like a, a medium-sized SUV, which is one of the most um, competitive segments in Australia. So think along the likes of like Toyota RAV4, um, the like of that. But one thing to mention is this is technically a seven-seat SUV. So it has what I would call a five plus two setup, which are a few medium SUVs in Australia offer that kind of uh, seating setup. So like the, the Mitsubishi Outlander, uh, the Nissan X-Trail, and also um, there's one more that I can't think of right now, the Honda CRV. So those three all offer like a similar setup. And this um, XUV 700 is around about uh, the similar, a similar size uh, inside and out. We haven't got pricing for this yet, have we? 
Unfortunately, we don't. So okay. what I, I kind of did some uh, some fun maths around it just as a, a little guidelines. Um, so what we do know is the, the Scorpio, which is called the Scorpio N in other markets, in Australia uh, right now, that uh, that range currently starts at 41990 drive away, which is a, a special introductory price until the end of the financial year. Now, um, something that is just worth mentioning is that the XUV700 is cheaper than the Scorpio in India. So you can kind of speculate that if uh, Mahindra follows a similar pricing structure, we could expect the, the XUV700 to be a little bit cheaper than the Scorpio uh, in Australia, which could mean it might be around the $40,000 um, price range drive away. Now, I can't say that to be certain, obviously, but I think for now that might be a good guess. Jack, the last XUV, the 500, was quite rugged. Um, it, it sort of wasn't particularly flashy inside. It looked a bit awkward outside. The 700 looks significantly more upmarket. I'm checking it out now, and the design is quite handsome for one, but the interior looks very modern. It's got things like flip-up Aston Martin-style door handles. Has Mahindra shuffled its approach around a little bit and aimed higher with this car? I think it's definitely trying its best. I, I'm glad that you mentioned the door handles because that's the first thing you notice when you walk up. It, in addition to looking like an Aston Martin, it also looks like an EV6. It kind of uh, opens up as you walk up to it. It's super weird on like a huge SUV when it's meant to be like an aerodynamic thing. But yeah, once you get inside, it's quite a, a high-tech uh, proposition. There's like a huge um, dual 10.25-inch two 10.25-inch screens, which looks quite high-tech. And although I didn't get a proper chance to test it out, it did feel, and like when I interacted with it, it felt quite high-tech and responsive as well. Now, um, Mahindra's kind of going down the, the flashy side um, with what it's going to offer in Australia. Now, uh, the only interior option in Australia is going to be a crispy white, um, pure white leather leatherette upholstery, um, which in a family-oriented SUV, I don't know if that necessarily makes sense um, with kids and shoes and mud and whatever. And you obviously, only choose white. That's correct because in Australia, we're going to be getting technically the the high spec models of the XUV 700 range. So that um, in India, there's like a, a low spec, uh, like a sorry, mid spec five seat version, and then um, a really really low spec. Um, like bare bones model. And obviously those get like a fabric upholstery uh, with black and whatnot. But yeah, these are the ones that are coming to Australia, the AX7 and AX7L are seven seats and all three rows have white leatherette upholstery. <laughs> and um, so I think if you want like a, to change the seats, you're going to have to put seat covers, which I don't know if that necessarily makes sense. And um, yeah, in addition to... Um, the white seat. There's also uh, like fake wooden paneling around the car. Uh, and I'll mention one more thing as well, um, where the driver's seat has um, electric adjustability, which isn't too crazy. It's to be expected really. Um, but the way that you adjust it is high up on the, the door panel, which is exactly like a Mercedes-Benz. I feel like a few of these features are, oh, I'm trying to think of a nice way of saying a rip-off, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's just... <laughs> It is what it is. Like it's definitely inspired by other vehicles and um, I suppose Mindra, Mahindra is just trying to one-up and just trying to blend in with the crowd in that, on that front. Jack, the Scorpio looks quite rugged but actually has a very modern engine under the bonnet. Um, what is powering the XUV700? That name is so annoying to say. Um, is it the same as the Scorpio or have they gone for a different engine? Now, something that's really interesting, uh, I find super interesting anyway, is um, the Australian um, XUV700 range at launch is only going to be available uh, with a two-litre turbocharged four-cylinder petrol engine um, with 149 kilowatts of power and 380 newton metres of torque. Um, when I first got into the car, I was expecting a diesel, although I did know it was a petrol Um but, um, yeah, I got the petrol noise and could rev out to 6,000 revs and whatnot. I think something that it is worth mentioning is um, 
there is a diesel engine. The same diesel engine from the Scorpio is available in the XUV700, but it won't be coming to Australia at launch. Now, Mahindra Automotive Australia is aware of, his ex- of its existence and um, it understands it's there, but right now it's off the cards for an Australian launch. But um. Something that it's also worth mentioning, uh, I know that I've said it's worth mentioning a lot, sorry, <laughs> but um, this petrol engine is only going to be available in front-wheel drive. So there's no all-wheel drive option available. It is available uh, with the diesel engine in other markets, but right now it's front-wheel drive only. So Wow. All right. Um, what about the third-row seating? Much room in the back? Now, when I had the opportunity to have a little a poke around the XUV700. I saw the the third row seats. I pulled the second row forward and I thought there is no way in hell I'm getting in there. It's <laughs> <laughs> it's just really really small and I didn't even attempt it because it just I I, I've, I imagine I could fit in there, but I didn't want to because I was just so hot and like I was just actively seeking out air conditioning. I didn't want to be in a like confined space, just like sweating it out and then not potentially being able to get out. So I just I took a couple of photos and it's not extremely big, but something um, uh, compared to the Scorpio, which has a six seat configuration, so it's like a two, two, and two seating setup with the second row captain's chairs. This obviously has a full seven seat or five plus two seating configuration. Now, the third row seats actually fold down properly, unlike the Scorpio, the Scorpio's third row that folds and then uh, tilts, uh, rocks forward, and you have to clip it on to the headrest. Um, very archaic in that front. But yeah, the, the XUV700's third, rows of seat, uh, third row of seats folds down properly so you have a flat uh, boot. And um, but just like the Scorpio as well, when you have that third row upright, there's virtually no boot at all. Uh, so yes, I, I imagine for, for the majority of owners, it'll be a, a third row sometimes and i assume that will only be for kids um but something uh the the entire range um has six uh airbags but the the third row is covered by the airbags too so that's something super important that a lot of family buyers might be looking for too it's interesting that Mahindra, for one, says it, it realizes there is a diesel engine and it acknowledges its existence, which is great. Um, but it, it is quite bold for Mahindra to come to Australia only with petrol and only with front wheel drive. Um, even though this car is competing with a lot of petrol SUVs, I would argue Mahindra is known for rugged all wheel drive or four wheel drive cars like the pickup and the Scorpio. Um, uh, it'll be interesting to see if it can start talking to a different type of buyer and sort of, I suppose, convince people to, to look away from that RAV4 and maybe look at something a bit more affordable as an alternative. Um, with that in mind, Jack, how did it actually drive? Yeah, I'll mention something super quickly is that Mahindra is definitely on an urban push right now. They're aiming to have, uh, it's aiming to have a whole heap of urban dealers um, rolling from now onwards, from my understanding. Uh, there's meant to be an XUV700 at every dealership that you can now take for a test drive if you like, so you can have fun. And um, yeah, this petrol engine, although it may seem like, uh, I, I want to say downgrade, but it's, I might say downgrade, but um, compared to like the rugged uh, diesel, but it's definitely, it's not as slow as you think it is because it obviously has um, 150 uh, kilowatts of power and 380 newton meters of torque. Now, I got the opportunity, this is really fun, um, to take uh, this XUV700 on Mahindra's um uh, high speed ring at its uh, proving track outside of Chennai and I got to take this uh, 700 at excess, excess of speeds between 160 and 180 k's just absolutely flying around this track it was um, an experience is what I will <laughs> say um, and uh, going around the corners um, it was a, like an 880 uh, parabolic curve it's an oval unlike Lang Lang which is like a full uh, continuous circle so it's like a NASCAR style track um, but on these curves that have a maximum inclination of 43 degrees one of the engineers was saying you can pull up to 0.6 Gs at traveling at 180 Ks an hour or something, which Jeez. is a little bit crazy to think of um, in a, like a mid-sized SUV. What's even crazier is I 
um, I didn't mention it in my review, but we also did the exact same thing in the Scorpio, which is even even more terrifying. <laughs> um, but yeah, this uh, the XUV seven double O definitely. It isn't a slug, but it isn't uh, necessarily geared towards overall speed, which it wouldn't be expected to anyway, given it's uh, pointed towards more towards an urban buyer. So definitely um, geared towards comfort. And you can tell that with the transmission tune. It doesn't rev all the way out to 6,000 revs. It's a little bit more docile, but if you really punch it, you, you, get, you get moving. So, yeah. Is it fairly uh, quiet in the cabin with with all the road noise? Yes, extremely. That's one of my favourite parts of the 700. I know that I experience it in like really controlled conditions overseas and I'm really looking forward to testing it out on Australian roads. But from my experience so far, it's really, really similar to the Scorpio. The Scorpio, once you're at speed, the revs dial down and it just hits a really nice groove, um, roughly like between 1,000 and 2,000 revs, one and a half, say. Um, it's super duper quiet and really refined. But um, obviously, once you get um, above a certain uh, speed threshold, let's say 180, <laughs> <laughs> the the obvious there's a whole heap of wind noise, and there's no way of really escaping that. Even the really sleek door handles <laughs> don't help you <laughs> escape the, the absolute noise that's created at that kind of speed. Jack, I think if any XUV owner gets their car to 150 k's an hour in Australia. Uh, Congratulations to them. Um, congratulations to the police who act, I, I assume pulled them over and, and, and caught them doing it. Um, yeah, uh, if, if it's refined at 100 and 110, that's probably a pretty good sign because I'd, I'd be staggered <laughs> if anyone goes faster than that in one of these cars in Australia. Um, do you think that this has what it takes to stand out alongside a, a really tough crowd of rivals? You've got cars like the RAV4 and the CX-5, obviously, but even lower down in the price range, you've got Havel H6, the MGHS, um, theoretically something new from Sangyong at something at some point soon. Do you think this does enough to actually convince people to look away from the mainstream brands? That is a really good question. The hardest part, the, the hardest job that Mahindra has right now is getting people to pronounce the name correctly. So XUV700, it's going to be a huge task for the company because everyone is going to want to call it an XUV700. So they have I that hurdle. As, as long as people are buying them, they're not going to worry about how they're pronouncing the name. And that's what I was going to mention just then. That the main thing beyond the uh, the main thing beyond the name is what Mahindra is going to price this car at. If it can get a really competitive price that um, makes people want to go to the showroom and test drive the car, because uh, this is a lot better than a Havel H6 to drive. Its suspension is phenomenal. It can deal with Indian roads and potholes and speed bumps, like no no deal whatsoever. So if if the, the XUV700 is priced really well and you go to the dealer, have a test drive and experience it, Mahindra, I think, is onto a, a really good thing with this car. Aside from the the lack of ANCAP safety rating, would you suggest this to to families? I would suggest this more than the Scorpio. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, as um as I mentioned a little while ago, uh, the Scorpio doesn't have any AEB and the like, but this is something that is different when the with the XUV seven double O. Obviously, because it's geared towards more of a, a family buy, it comes with a whole suite of um, uh, assistant assistance systems, including like AEB and like uh, like lane keep assist, and then also adaptive cruise. Um, but something that's worth mentioning is that blind spot monitoring and rear cross traffic alert isn't standard on the range. So, that, so there are some holes in the safety equipment, but it is generally better than. The, the Scorpio and is uh, I want to say it's on par with the segment, but if it doesn't have those features, it's really not. But um, it's better to have some some features. But I suppose that will be a sticking point. But absolutely, I I would reckon this recommend this more than the Scorpio <laughs> on the safety front, at least. Anyway. Well, that wraps up uh, that review. You can check it out now at carexpert.com.au and stay tuned for the Australian uh, launch review as well. That brings it into another Car Expert podcast. What cars have we got coming up in the garage next week, Jack? 
Now, we actually have some really cool cars coming uh, in in this next week. In Melbourne, uh, we have a Toyota GR Corolla GTS. Uh, We have yet another Subaru Crosstrek, uh, the 2.0S. And then we also have uh, the Kia Sorento GT Line uh, V6 front-wheel drive. And then yet another (laughs) Mazda 6 uh, 20th anniversary sedan that I'm going to be driving, and I look forward to that a lot. Um, Another Mazda, Mazda 6. 5 GTSP. And then, from my understanding, that is all that we have next week. Hmm, nice. Very lovely mix. Uh, what about some launches, Scully? So, Jack is off to Sydney on Monday next week to talk with the Kia team about what's coming up. They're always really interesting events, and Kia's got some cool stuff on the horizon, we understand. So, it'll be good to get a breakdown of that. James is off to Adelaide to drive the Alfa Romeo Tonale. It's finally hit Australia. And Jade is off to Sydney for a look at the Skoda Enyaq. And then later in the week, we've got Paul off to Alice Springs to drive something Ford Ranger related. So keep an eye out for that. Awesome stuff. Well, if you uh, got any feedback for us or any questions at all, we can, we can help you out. Maybe you're buying a new car. Uh, you can email podcast at carexpert.com.au and we can help you out. Jack Quick and Scott Colley, thank you. Thanks, Mandy. Thank you.